All right, Ezra chapter 8 this evening as we continue our journey through the book of Ezra together. Last time we began this second section of the book of Ezra, which addresses for us uh, a second delegation that goes back to Jerusalem uh, from the captivity. Remember, we saw the first delegation came back in chapters 1 through 6, led by a man named Zerubbabel and a few others who came back, a remnant of about 50,000 or so, embraced the call of God to go back to resettle in Jerusalem, to restore and to rebuild the temple there that had been destroyed. Uh, a time gap of about 60 years, as we said last time, exists actually between chapter 6 and chapter 7 itself. There's about a 60-year time frame there. And now we see a second delegation comes back under the man named Ezra as their leader, who, of course, our book is named after and who we believe recorded as the human instrument, this particular Old Testament book that we have under the inspiration of the Spirit. And uh, chapter 7 begins uh, to describe to us, sort of in a summary, we looked at chapter 7 last time, some things about this man, Ezra. Uh, we're told that he was a scribe, that is someone who hand-copied uh, the Word of God, that is making copies of Scripture by actually handwritten process, as well as the fact that he was a priest. And we saw last time quite a bit about the character of this man, Ezra, and certainly why God used him to the extent that he did. And again, Ezra was used by God, it seems, to come back with a second group now to the area of Jerusalem and to really come back to help rebuild the spiritual lives of the people and to try and help and support and teach them the word of God. We'll see to address some of the sin and problematic things that had happened and Ezra was, was quite the man of God. We're told multiple times that the good hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Uh, we saw in verse 10 that he was a man who had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So uh, here God, if you would, puts his hand upon this man. Ezra gives him the desire to answer a calling the Lord was putting on his heart to make that long journey to go back now to the area of Jerusalem to help teach the word of God, strengthen the spiritual lives of the people. And chapter 7, the latter part of it, really gave to us the letter, really that was the permission from King Artaxerxes with some instructions. As he went back to the area of Jerusalem, he would bring a copy of this letter with him, a decree from Artaxerxes, who was now the reigning king there in the Medo-Persian Empire, saying that any who wanted to go with Ezra could voluntarily go along with him, that they were to be provided for, they were to be protected and assisted, and that even when he got back to that location, there was a decree and instruction that those who were actually in that territory were to do whatever they could to be supportive, to not stand in his way, to even from the king's treasury supply uh, that which might be needed. Again, God just used another way of providing for his work that he was going to do. And Ezra, at the end of the chapter, just began to, to worship and to bless the Lord because he knew that God had put this into the king's heart. He knew God had to move on the heart of the king or this opportunity never would have come to pass. And, and Ezra recognized this had nothing to do with the efforts that he made or anything else or strategic planning, but this was just a spiritual move of God who had stirred the heart of the king, put favor in his heart to let Ezra and others return back now to Jerusalem uh, and that he had now had this opportunity. And the chapter ended by saying that he was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God, he says, was upon me, and I gathered leading men to go to Israel 
with me. Now, as we come into chapter 8, it's almost as if chapter 7 gives to us the telescopic view that is kind of the, the big picture, the summarization of Ezra returning. And chapter 8 now kind of zooms in the lens and gives us a little bit more of some of the microscopic details. And, and it's almost as if rather than Ezra continuing on, he now backtracks. And in chapter 8 going forward, he gives a little bit more of a detailed description how this whole process came together which helped him to make the journey back to Jerusalem. So he kind of, if you would, summarizes the return in chapter 7, and now he's going to explain a little bit more the details of how all that happened uh, as the part of the journey and the process to get there. So he's not going after, he's actually just going back and filling in some details. And he starts out with uh, the, the leading men or the leaders that he gathered around him to answer God's call to go back as he charts chapter 8. He says, these are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy, he says, of those who went up with me from Babylon in the region, or excuse me, in the reign of Artaxerxes. And then he gives a list of names there from verse 2, as you can tell, of the sons of Phineas, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of Hattush, and he just begins to give lists together with, you notice, verse 3, this was 150 males, the end of verse 4, with him, 200 males. Again, these are family lines, verse 5, with him, 300 males, and so forth. So he's giving the distinctions, some of the names from a genealogical record, so they could keep track of who returned, with some of the numbers. If you were to go back and kind of add the numbers, it equates to about somewhere around 1,500 men returned with him plus we know of course there was also women and children in the chapter so kind of gives to us a basic idea a much smaller delegation returned in the second uh, group that went back to jerusalem under ezra than the first group that went back originally to rebuild the temple so as we now come to chapter 8 verse 15 at the end of this list of names ezra gives he says now i gathered them by the river, he says, that flows to Ahava, and we camped there for three days. And I looked among the people and the priests, and I found none of the sons of Levi there. So what Ezra's describing is, is as he gets ready to venture off into this journey, and remember, as we said, uh, taking the longer route, it was about a 900-mile journey to get from where they were in the area of Babylon all the way back to the area of Jerusalem. Uh, last chapter told us it was a four-month-long trip. So, again, th this is an extensive journey through a lot of difficult terrain, a lot of obstacles. There are dangerous things along the way. We're going to see reference to that tonight, bandits along the road, and you're moving with a big caravan of people. So it seems that what he does here in verse 15 is, as they prepare to set out, they kind of, step away, if you would, from where they're living in the territory. They camp initially at this location, it says, by the river that flows to Ahava, and they camp there for three days. And probably making preparations, talking through things, probably the call went out when the decree was issued uh, by Artaxerxes that anyone who wanted to volunteer to go up to Jerusalem could go with Ezra. And probably this was sort of a staging area, if we could kind of get that idea in our mind. And so for three days, they're kind of in this staging area, camp there, seeing who's going to come out. And before Ezra goes, it tells us 
that he kind of took inventory, particularly looking for those who were willing to be able to serve in the house of God and to perform ministry, the Levites, those who were the designated tribe by God's selection to be those who were the priests and the temple servants and those who could do the ministry of God in the temple of the Lord. And so Ezra wanted to certainly make sure that he had a group of them among him because they were going back to teach the people the word of God, to strengthen them spiritually. So he wanted to make sure that he had a, a group of spiritual ministers and servants who could assist him in this process to help the spiritual lives of the people. So he kind of takes inventory and he says when he looks among the people and the priests that he did not find any of the sons of Levi there. Uh, So certainly this was probably a very disappointing thing as Ezra realizes, okay, the call of God has gone out. There's an opportunity to go and to serve God's people to do the work of the Lord And those who were actually the, if you would, ordained and spiritually gifted individuals who were supposed to do this, none of them answered the call. Uh, None of them were interested, it seems. Now, we can speculate different reasons why. I mean, certainly maybe to some degree what might be fair to say is it's likely that some of them did not want to answer that call because it wasn't going to be an easy journey. It wasn't going to be an easy calling. They, many of them, taking the advice of Jeremiah the prophet when they were going into the captivity, when they would be there for 70 years, uh, Jeremiah told them, look, don't resist. Just you know, yield to what God's doing. Don't fight the consequences. Don't try and resist Babylon. Go there, build houses, establish yourselves. You're going to be there for 70 years. Uh, the consequence is going to serve its term. Don't fight the system. Just yield to it until the time frame is up. Well, many of them had done that, but then they also had become very comfortable in Babylon. Uh, Many of them had established businesses and they had fields and all these kind of things. And and they kind of settled into life there. And no doubt, because they were out of the land, the Levites had done this as well. Now, if you remember from an Old Testament perspective, when God gave land to the tribes of Israel initially, remember the tribe of Levi did not get land. They didn't get territory. All the other 11 tribes got territories and lands and fields, but God told the tribe of Levi, you don't get land. I'm your inheritance. I'll take care of you. I want you fully focused on and dedicated to my work and to the temple ministry and to the people of God and spiritual service. So the Levites in the land of Babylon probably were faring not too bad. They were able to establish themselves and kind of have a comfortable life and enjoy some of the material blessings. And and now here they're finding out there's an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to answer the call of God. And they're thinking, uh, hold on a minute. <laughs> that means giving everything up and starting all over. And there's no promise on the other side for us. There's no, uh, you know, well, when you get here, we have your parsonage ready and your salary. And they're, they're thinking that you're talking about giving up established, comfortable existence and totally stepping out into faith and not knowing what's going to happen on the other side when we get there. Other than that, we'll be serving God. We'll be helping God's people. But other than that, there's no assurances. There's no guarantees. And so some of them maybe because of a, a lack of faith. Or maybe just as we all can struggle with it sometimes, you know, just kind of apathy or materialism or just, you know, becoming comfortable with the comforts of this world, creature comforts. It was a struggle for them. And so the things of God and hearing what God was offering them to do was causing a real challenge. And the tragedy is, it says, not even one of the sons of Levi answered the call. 
And how disappointing this must have been for Ezra, the one who was willing to answer and not see others willing to make that Satan step of faith and sacrifice with him. Uh, again, it reminds us of the words of Jesus, does it not? Remember when Jesus spoke about his work, Jesus made that classic statement. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he said, you know, don't say four more months until the harvest. He said, open your eyes now. The, the fields are ripe unto harvest. Pray the Lord would send out laborers into his harvest field. But, of course, the problem is exactly what Jesus said. There, there's always plenty to be done. There's always opportunity to serve. But a lot of times there's a lack of those who are willing to make the sacrifice to serve. Willing to, in a sense, inconvenience their personal life to do things to serve God or serve his people or his work in some ways. And here, sadly, none of the spiritual uh, you know, ministers, the Levites, those who were supposed to be those who were doing this, were found among the sons of Levi. Well, uh, Ezra wasn't going to settle for that. Uh, he wasn't going to settle for second-class spiritual life. In his mind, he, he felt like, no, they need to be challenged. They need to be exhorted. They need to be encouraged to step up and to answer the call. So it says, verse 16, that he didn't just take off. He sent, it says, for Eliezer and Ariel and Shemaiah and Elnathan and Jarib. And then another Elnathan must have been like Joe in that day. That was a common name. You see it three times in this list. Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leaders. Also for Juriab, and there you notice another, a third Elnathan, men of understanding. And I gave them, he says, a command for Idu, the chief man, at the place of Casaphia. And I told them what they should say to Ido and his brethren. The Nethanim, remember the Nethanim were the temple servants, according to David, that were supposed to be kind of like the support staff to the priests and to the Levites. They were kind of to be the supporting staff members to help as servants in the temple. And it says that they should, notice verse 17, this is why he sent out these leaders, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. So Ezra calls together a group of leaders. He refers to them there in verse 16 as men of understanding. And that's what leaders should be, men of understanding, men who understand the ways of God, who understand the things of God and, and can use that wisdom and understanding to try and bring understanding to God's people to help them to see what matters to God and what doesn't matter, help them to see what's right and what's wrong and, and what God's will is in certain matters. And so he calls together these leaders who are men of understanding, and he gives them a command that they should go out and bring back, it says, servants for the house of God. We need some servants in God's house. Go back among the people and challenge them to serve the Lord. Challenge them to, to not be comfortable and complacent, but to be open to step out in faith and to let their life be useful for God and to give themselves to the purposes of the Lord. And, and I like what he particularly calls them, servants for the house of our God. Again, that's, that's what God's looking for, just servants, not necessarily superstars or incredibly talented people or gifted people, you know, whether it was in the days of Ezra or it is as in the days of the church, you know, th that is so often just the most fundamental need, just people who are willing to be servants. And what does a servant do? A servant just does whatever task needs to be done. It's not a matter of skill or expertise. You know, servants just do whatever the master needs done. 
whatever takes care of other people. That's what a servant does. And that's what God needs in his house. That's what God needs among the church. Just people who are willing to be servants for the house of our God. And so he says, go and get some servants for the house of our God. In verse 18, it says, and then by the good hand of our God upon us. Again, that remember speaks of God's favor, the good hand of God. We've seen that probably five, six times now. It's that repeated refrain. And it just speaks of, of God's favor being upon them. The idea is God was giving them a hand, we might say. His good hand was upon them. They weren't operating in their human strength, but the divine hand of God's favor was upon our life. And, you know, that's something we all want because that's what makes the difference. That's what made the difference in Ezra's life. That's what makes the difference. We're going to see they go back and they're actually able to recruit some servants for the house of God. And it wasn't just their human effort alone. Did they go through the stewardship of the practical process of following Ezra's command, going back, talking to the people, saying, hey, look, you're a Levite, man. I mean, come on, let's join with us. Let's let's go back to Jerusalem and let's do what God's called us to do. Did they do their part humanly? Of course they did. But the reason why they were effective and they actually got some respondents was because of what verse 18 says there, because the good hand of God was upon them. Because God was giving them a hand and God's favorable hand was with them, that's where the success comes from. And look, for all of us, that's the distinctive that makes the difference in all of our lives. Whatever you do for God, however you serve the Lord in different capacities in your life, do you have to do your part? Absolutely. And you should. You should be faithful. The Bible tells us that it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Jesus said when we get into heaven, the only measure of reward is going to be this well done, good and faithful servant. So we contribute one part, faithfulness, reliability, dependability. We follow through and, and we do what we do well for the Lord. But even the greatest measures of faithfulness will not yield fruitfulness if the favor of God and his good hand is not upon us in what we're doing, we have to say, Lord, you got to put your unction upon this. Your anointing has to be upon this. Just human effort alone is never sufficient. So the good hand of God was upon them. And it says, that's why, verse 18, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, Namely, Sherebiah with his sons and brothers and 18 men. So they recruited 18 men from that particular family among the Levites. And then verse 19, Hashabiah and with him were the sons of Merari and brothers and sons, another 20 men. So altogether, they recruited 38 Levites. So they've recruited now some among the Levites to answer God's call. Verse 20, also of the Nethanim, whom David, the leaders, had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 of the Nethanim, and all of them were designated by name. So they're able to summon 38 Levites to answer the call, to, to be stirred in faith and willing to take this step of obedience with them to enter into the Lord's calling and work as well as they're able to gather another 200 of the Nethanim. And again, as I said, they were kind of like support staff. You notice there it says David appointed them for the service of the Levites. So the Levites did God's work, if you would, directly. And these Nethanim who were servants, their service was our job is to answer a calling to serve you so that you can serve God more effectively. 
And this is kind of what the Nethanim would do. They were the support staff, those who held up the arms and, in a sense, assisted the Levites personally so that the Levites could do God's work directly and good fruit would come from what was happening among their ministry. Verse 21, he says, and then after he recruited some Levites and the Nethanim, he's kind of gathered them in now. He says, then, verse 21, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all of our possessions. For I was ashamed, he says, to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king, saying the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. So once he assembles this group of Levites and Nethanim, and he realizes, okay, now we're ready. We have servants of God here, those that we need to go back to be effective, to strengthen the spiritual lives of the people of Jerusalem. Before they just launch out, you notice the first thing they do is they kind of pause, and it says, again, for another three days— The indication is here. He says, I proclaimed a fast there. And we began, he says, just to humble ourselves before God and seek from him. It says, verse 21, the right way for us and for our little ones and for all of the possessions and everything they had as they would make this journey. Again, this was going to be a a, a major step. This was going to be a difficult journey. There was a lot of things to navigate, which direction to take, which routes there were going to be traps and dangerous things along the way bandits and those who could harm them so the very first thing they do before they even set out is it says he proclaims a time of just fasting and prayer and again the idea of fasting in the scripture just speaks of the the denial in some way of the flesh that we might be able to give more attention to that which is of the spirit and the spiritual life in our and so oftentimes we see fasting and prayer tied together again whether you're fasting from food for a day or for multiple days or you know fasting for a meal or whatever it may be there are many different ways in the scripture it seems to be able to do that uh, but he says we proclaim to fast and then we began to humble ourselves and to seek god for direction now it kind of looks counterproductive you're thinking okay you're getting ready to take this major journey with all these people shouldn't you say look let's eat the best meal possible because this may be the last good meal (laughs) we're gonna get for a while i mean we've run out of supplies on the way so you know what feast and gorge yourselves folks because it may be a long journey the next 900 miles in four months and he kind of does the opposite But again, this just begins to show you all the more that Ezra was a man who really understood the value of dependency upon God. I mean, it's kind of reminded me in some ways when I looked at this again of, uh, you know, in Joshua chapter 5, where, you know, the, the people of God are instructed and they actually circumcise themselves before the biggest battle that they're about to fight at Jericho. And you're thinking, hold on a minute. These are adult males, and, and it says with a flint stone, not, not Barney Rubble type of flint stone, but with a flint stone, they literally circumcise all of their males right outside the city of Jericho. So again, here they are, they're in pain, they're in discomfort, and you're thinking, 
You just made your entire army completely vulnerable. Why would you do that? Well, because it was more important to be right with God than it was to have all the human resources at your disposal. And, and it, it forced dependency upon God. And so Ezra here, in a sense, the same way. He, he calls for a time of fasting and prayer. He says, for two reasons, that we might humble ourselves before our God. And again, when, when you deprive yourself of food and natural things that you're used to just kind of we must take for granted, it brings a, a humility because all of a sudden you recognize, wow, that's what it feels like not to eat. That's what it feels like to go without a meal. And, and there's something that humbles our humanity when a person does such a thing. Uh, again, we, a lot of times, we, especially as Americans, I mean, we, we fail to realize there are people all over the world that go without meals days upon end at times uh, and, and literally you know, live in a completely different way. So in some ways, that denial of the flesh has a way to bring a measure of humility, and it kind of causes us to recognize our complete dependency upon God for our existence, and oftentimes fasting is tied together with prayer that we might really seek God about something that is important. The idea is, God, this is so important, we are willing to give up even our very meal because this is so important to us that we want your direction, we want your help in this situation. So uh, there's a time where this kind of thing is uh, something that the Lord may have us to do, where we especially, you know, maybe we need serious direction about something. We're at a major crossroads, uh, and, and these are the times. And Ezra shows here, he says, we began to seek God for the right way for our little ones and our possessions. He was concerned. They had children. They had vulnerabilities you know what's the right way to take there are lots of different routes lord we're praying show us which way to take which avenues to turn which areas to stay away from to preserve us so that we don't have loss along the way again i i love just the language to seek god for the right way for our little ones and for our possessions you know that's a great prayer for all of us uh, especially for those of us who have families and you know things that we're concerned about, to, to seek God for the right way, not just enter into some way and say, God, bless my way. I'm going this way, bless it. A lot of times that's what we do. We just go some way and then we, we ask God, please bless this, Lord. Rather than seeking God, what's the right way to go about this, Lord? What's your way? And, and letting him direct us by the wisdom he gives to us and the guidance and verse 22 tells us one of the reasons why he also did this also. He says, I was ashamed, look what he says, I was ashamed to request from King Artaxerxes an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of God is upon all those for good who seek him. So Ezra apparently had declined, it seems, the offer of King Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes offered many different things. Remember, even he offered to finance the trip and to help in a lot of different ways. And it was very common in this day when you traveled, especially we're going to see, they travel with a massive amount of financial resources. And there were always bandits along the way, people who would come and attack a caravan and steal the resources. And, and so it was very common to travel with security forces to travel with you know a part of a military company with you along the way and apparently artaxerxes had offered this and ezra had said you know what listen thank you so much but our god is with us and the hand of our god is upon us 
And yes, there are dangerous things. And yes, there will be enemies. But we believe that our God is bigger than those things. We believe our God loves us. And we believe in the preserving power of our Almighty God. And so, yes, though, it'd be gracious of you to give us soldiers. It's really not necessary. Thank you, but no thanks. And he kind of just declines the offer. And apparently, God gives to him a measure of faith in his heart to believe we don't need that natural assistance in this situation. We believe God will be our preservation. God will protect us and God will take care of us. And so once he makes that proclamation, he realizes, okay, God's honors at stake now. We told the king we don't need a military force, so it's going to be a dangerous trip. God, we need you to tell us what roads to take and what roads not to take. Because all of our little ones and all of our possessions, God, tell us, should we take that valley or that valley? Where are the bandits? <laughs> and, and so it forced them to depend upon God. And here you see a man who really cares about God's reputation. And, and I admire this about Ezra, that he wanted God to have his reputation upheld. And he didn't want God to look bad. He didn't want God to look like he couldn't do. And he had boasted on God. So he's like, I boasted on God. <laughs> I got to stand behind his reputation now. I need to look to him. And, and, and he was someone who had faith in his heart and he wants to exercise that faith. He doesn't want to be a hypocrite. And look, let's be very honest. How many times when people say, you know, they don't want to come to church or they don't want to be a part of, you know, Christians because what's the number one thing? They're all what? Hypocrites. They say one thing, but they don't do it. They say this stuff, but they don't live it out. They say God's going to provide, but then they're always begging us for money. They say God will do this, but then, you know, they're doing these. And the idea is they're saying one thing, but then they don't practice it. They don't carry it out in faith. And, and that bothers people, and, and rightly so to a degree. And here Ezra is saying, I don't want to be a hypocrite. People are watching. I said God will take care of us. I believe he's going to do it. And I'm going to give him a chance to show that he's God for his honor and for his reputation. And Ezra is just a great example of wanting to honor God and a man obviously of great faith because he says, verse 23, we fasted and entreated our God for this. And look what he says, he answered our prayer. Boy, there's a great encouragement in the word of God there. We fasted and entreated God for this and he came through. He answered our prayer. The rest of the chapter describes exactly how that happened. This shows, again, that Ezra, on top of many other things, was a man of faith. He was a man who knew how to live in reliance upon God. He truly believed that God would do things, and he was a man who looked to God for things. You know, would to God that we would all grow in that area, that we would become people who learn how to genuinely give God a chance to show that he's God sometimes. You know, sometimes we got to be willing to take that step of faith, to trust the Lord. You know, sometimes we say we believe God and trust God and God will provide or God will open a door or God will protect us. And then we just do all these human things to manipulate in the flesh and we never give God a chance to answer prayer. You know, we miss opportunities to grow. We miss opportunities for God to be glorified. And you know, I want to encourage you, learn how to look to God for things. Let God do things. Do you need God to open a door? Stop trying to force the door open yourself. Pray and believe that if God wants to open a door, God will divinely open a door. 
do you need God to provide? I'm not saying don't be responsible, be a good steward, but you know, sometimes we start manipulating and tweaking things and we don't give God a chance to move and God a chance to do things. Learn how to look to God for things. Don't be somebody who's always trying to manipulate and work things in the flesh. It does nothing for God's honor, and that kind of thing really does nothing for us to grow spiritually as well. Ezra says, we fasted, we entreated God. God, we need you to do this, and God answered our prayer, he says. So then, verse 24, I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah and Hashabiah, and 10 of their other brethren with them. So 12 different men, he separates, we're going to see here, he separates out the financial resources as they're about to make this trip, another thing he does. And he weighed out to them, verse 25, the silver, the gold, the articles, the offerings for the house of God, which the king and his counselors and princes and all Israel with him who were present had offered. And I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, Silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins, 1,000 gold drachmas, two vessels of fine polished bronze, and precious gold. You know, commentators say that when you equate the modern equivalents of what's described there with the weights and the you know, amounts of those precious metals there, upwards to the millions of dollars. That's how much wealth they were traveling with. Do you get the idea why he was saying, God, please protect us in our possessions? <laughs> I mean, he's traveling with a huge group and millions of dollars, millions of dollars. So what he does is he uses stewardship and wisdom here. Again, this goes to show the balance. Man of prayer, man of great faith, but he has all this wealth and he calls together 12 men and he says, look, we're going to separate the money with 12 different people. You take a portion, you take a portion, you, and, he, and he designates a portion, splits up all of this millions of dollars worth of wealth and precious gold and materials among these 12 leaders. And verse 28, he said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. The silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch, he says, verse 29, and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders and the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses of Israel in Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So in essence, he designates portions of this wealth to each one of them. And he says, look, we are trusting you with your integrity to be able, he says, to watch and to keep what we're entrusting into your stewardship, he says, until we end up arriving there in Jerusalem, and he says, until you deliver it there and you give an accounting for what you were responsible for. So basically, they were to carry and make sure they kept track of and, and be a good steward because when they got there, they were going to give account for what was entrusted to them. They were going to answer for that, each one of those 12 men. And again, this is just wisdom in the sense of the way that, again, stewardship's being handled here, being very wise, being very careful, putting in place practices that ensured that the money was used properly, that there wasn't anything that went on that was inappropriate. And he said, look, this is how much is entrusted to you. And when we get to Jerusalem, you better have the same amount when you get there as when we left four months later. You better have the same amount when you get there, he says, when you bring them to the house of the Lord 
in Jerusalem. Again, I like the stewardship. There's accountability there. There's multiple people involved, good management of resources. And again, these are God's resources, so that's important. So it says, verse 31, Then we departed from the river of Ahava. It was on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. They finally departed. And the hand of our God, here it is again, the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. So Ezra says, we took off, we began our journey, and he gives testimony to the faithfulness of God. He says, the hand of the Lord God was upon us. And notice, were there enemies? Were there potential ambushes? Absolutely. But he says, because the hand of God was upon us, he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the road. It was God who delivered us. It was God who protected us so the enemy didn't destroy us, he said. And what a wonderful encouragement, because in the same way that was true of literal physical enemies as they journeyed in God's work, carrying out the the thing that God was leading them to do, the Bible is very clear that we have a spiritual enemy. The Bible tells us that we're to be sober and vigilant because there's an adversary, the devil, who's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that he's sitting there ready to ambush, ready to attack. And we have an enemy who wants to destroy us and to ruin our lives. But you know what? What makes the difference in preservation? Close relationship with God. The Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. And in the same way that Ezra could say, God's hand was upon us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush, we can trust that the Lord will do the same for us. The Lord can deliver us. The Lord can protect us. The Lord can shield us. The enemy may try and ambush. He will. But the Lord is able to guide us and to keep us and not let the enemy ultimately destroy us. And though the enemy may try and attack, the wonderful thing is the Lord can come to our aid and protect and rescue us, even as he did for Ezra and these people here, so that ultimately we arrive to where we're supposed to be. And that's beautiful. They ultimately arrived at Jerusalem. And you know what? The Lord is going to protect and preserve us from the evil one until we arrive at our Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, until glory. The Lord will be our protector and keep us from the enemy. So they now get to Jerusalem, that four-month journey, They stay there for three days, again, maybe kind of resting up and recuperating after that long journey. Now, on the fourth day, he says, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah. With him was Eliezer and the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad and Jeshua and Noadiah, the son of Benui. And with the number and weight of everything, look what it says, verse 34, all the weight was written down at that time. So they weighed out the amounts, verse 33 says, in the house of God. So when they got there, Ezra kept his word. He says, okay, we're here. One by one, those 12 men came in with their stewardship of what they were entrusted with, and they weighed out all the gold and all the silver and all the bronze And incredibly, all 12 men were faithful stewards. They all did what God had entrusted them to do. And when they weighed out, it says everything was there. Nothing was missing. Again, just a beautiful picture of good stewardship among God's people. Each person being a good steward with what the Lord had entrusted them. They had carried that treasure and they had delivered it there to Jerusalem. And again, 
you know, the Bible tells us certainly God entrusts certain things to us, but one of the greatest treasures that we carry, that we're to be stewards of, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That is the treasure of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And we are to carry that treasure within us and be good stewards of Jesus and share the gospel with people and continue to do what the Lord would have us to do as he uses us in our journey until we ultimately arrive at the new Jerusalem where we meet our final destination. Verse 35 says, And the children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord, and they delivered the king's orders and the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they begin to worship the Lord, verse 35 says, a time of celebration. They've arrived. They're now with the people of God. They've made this long journey. Verse 36 says they then deliver over that letter, which we read in extent in chapter 7, which gave a decree and order to the different governors in the area that they were to help them and the things that they were to do there as Ezra returned. And verse 36 says that Ezra and those with him, they gave support to the people and to the house of God. So they began to do what God had called them there to do, to begin to support the spiritual lives of the people, teaching them the word of God, helping them to be strengthened. They began to support God's people and to give support to the house of God and to the ministry there. Now, one would think that Ezra, when he arrived, would be very excited and made this journey. And probably the whole time he's coming from Babylon, he's thinking, I can't wait to get to Jerusalem and to be there with the temple and back among God's people and others who took this same calling that we did and, and, and how wonderful that's going to be. Well, look at me the beginning part of chapter 9 before we wrap up our time here. Ezra got a little bit of a surprise but a reality check, because this is often how things can be among the God's people. It says, and when these things were done, the leaders, some of the leaders there, came to Ezra, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. Take notice of this phrase, with respect to the abominations, that is all the sinful practices, the idolatry, the wicked things that were being done, among the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Parasites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed, that is God's people, were being mixed, it says, with the peoples of those lands. And indeed, worse, he says, the hand of the leaders, those who are supposed to be leaders, and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So a problem is brought to Ezra's attention of compromise among the people of God. And he says here, God's people are violating what Deuteronomy chapter 7 was given to them as an instruction. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God told the people of Israel that when they went into the land of Canaan, that they were not to intermarry with the people of the land, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, again, these pagan people who were engaged in all types of idolatry and demonic 
practices, child sacrifice and just, you know, vile, immoral sexual activity and just living in ways that were completely grotesque that ultimately caused God to bring judgment upon those people. And so God said, look, I don't want you to intermarry with those people. It had nothing to do with ethnicity or, you know, uh, marrying people of a different nationality. It had everything to do with spiritual condition. And so God says, look, if you intermarry with them, you're going to begin to make compromises. You're going to be unequally yoked spiritually, and you're going to start to make concessions. And you'll start to engage in the things of your sinful flesh, and you'll follow their practices, and you're not going to serve me. And so God, trying to protect and preserve that, gave them that command. Well, they were ignoring this. It says that they began to be compromising going on back in the land of Jerusalem before Ezra had arrived there. It says, with respect to the abominations of those peoples. They hadn't separated themselves. They had started to intermarry with them. Again, direct disregard for the word of God. And it was a disregard of God's word. This had nothing to do with, again, you know, marrying people of different nationalities or interracial marriage. That is not even what the context is about. It was an issue of being unequally yoked spiritually and the destruction this would bring. Now, why was that so damaging? Not just because it would defile the lives of God's people, but even more because up to this point, God was still preserving it. Notice there it says the holy seed, because God through the holy preserved set apart seed of the people of Israel. And then through the tribe of Judah and through, and through the family line of David, God was going to bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so God could not jeopardize that being intermixed and defiled. And so there was something even greater at stake. God's ultimate plan is why this was so dangerous. The tragedy it says even the leaders and rulers, they were the biggest compromisers. You know, something is really sad when those who are supposed to be leaders are those who are living in the greatest compromise spiritually. I mean, something very, very off track has started to happen. So it says, verse three, when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe. That was an expression of great grief. Plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard. Aren't you ready for ministry? And sat down astonished. He says, then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel came to me because of the transgressions. Notice that word transgression means clear violation. The idea is it's not a mistake. You misstep. Transgression is you know where the line is and you defiantly step over it anyway. It's a willful, conscious act of rebellion, transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And he says, I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. So when Ezra heard this, look at the strong reaction of this man of God. When he heard the sin and the compromise among God's people, he didn't brush it off as no big deal. It says he tore his robes. He ripped out literally the hair from his head and his face. Again, these were expressions uh, that they typically would reserve for times of like death when you were stricken with grief. The idea is when you would tear your garment, it was an expressive way of saying this is tearing my heart. It's tearing me apart. This is tearing me in pieces. And he's astonished. He can't believe after all we went through. After all God did to be gracious, what are we doing? What are we doing? Compromising and living like the world. What kind of testimony is this going to be? And this, he's just utterly 
astounded and astonished, it says. He's grieved by what's going on. And, you know, I look at the heart of Ezra there, and I think, man, would to God that by the power of the Holy Spirit, more of us would continue to have that kind of a strong response to sin among God's people and compromise. That it wouldn't just be something we just, well, whatever, just and we just kind of gloss her. I guess that's the next Christian who's doing that. I guess that's the next, you know, but that we would be grief-stricken that it would seriously astonish and bother us when people rebel against God and God's word, professing followers of the Lord. Because we know the damage that that brings to the Lord and the, the, the way it neutralizes the effectiveness of God's people, that we would have a strong response like Ezra here when those kind of things go on. Well, verse 5 says, And at the evening sacrifice I then arose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe. And look what he did. It says, I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord, my God. And Ezra then in chapter nine begins to pray and to plead with God and seek God in regards to this situation. And next time we'll look at his prayer there, but take notice, what's the first thing that Ezra does after he's grief stricken over what's going on? He prays. He prays. He doesn't start attacking the people and accusing the people and I'm going to tell you and rebuking the people. The very first thing he's motivated to do is to cry out to God. God, this is, what are we doing? God, help us, forgive us. And he just begins to, to talk it through and to pray it through with God, which ultimately gives to him the ability to have a right heart from God to then begin to respond properly to help the people spiritually. And you know what? When something happens, something arises where, again, somebody enters into sin, it comes to light. That's always the right response to a situation like that is to begin to pray and to seek God, not to tell other people, not to you know freak out on somebody, start attacking them, accusing them, rebuking them, but to plead with God about it first, to take it before God in prayer and to let God direct you forward. Great, great advice. You know, perhaps recently something has transpired and kind of come across your life that's just, boy, it's, it's, it's really tearing you up. Can I encourage you? Get on your knees and pray. Plead with God. Talk to God about it and let him direct you forward. Shall we stand together?